Good morning again, my brothers and sisters, and to Casey and all of you who have led us so well in worship. What a blessing. Thank you. Thank you. I've got to come back often. This group sings. Oh, I tried to sing as loud as I could, but I just joined my voice in with yours. So glad to be with you today. Uh, I want us to remember today that prayer that Jesus prayed uh, just before he went to the cross. Do you remember in John 17? I know you do. He first prayed for himself and then for his own 12 disciples. And then he prayed, Father, I'll pray for those who will believe in me through their message. Uh, that, and here's what he said, all of them may be one. Now I'll tell you, I read that phrase, all of them, and I ask the question, who are the all of thems who are in Jesus's all of thems? I, then I read through the gospels and I see these all of thems that he blesses, uh, lepers, tax collectors, a prostitute, a demon possessed man, a thief on the cross, He's harder on people like me. Then I find, ah, there's Jairus, a synagogue ruler. Uh, maybe, maybe I can be in one of the all of thems too. And th then I go to the many churches I had the privilege of, of, of visiting. And sometimes I get the impression that the all of thems who are in our all of thems are not quite as broad as the all of thems who are in Jesus' all of thems. So sometimes I get the idea that we don't want some of the all of thems who are in his all of thems to be in our local church all of thems. <laughs> we might want them to come back to Jesus, but then, then, then we think maybe they can go over to some place where they find people more like themselves. I'm preaching here. Just okay. <laughs> now, if you believe as I believe, if your ecclesiology is that a church is incarnational, I mean, everything God does is incarnational, that God plants his people and churches in neighborhoods for a reason, to glorify him, to reflect his unity with triunity, to give witness to Jesus, then I think we have to look at the life of Jesus and find out who is in his, his all of them and bring them into ours. So in our next two chapel messages, I'm going to consider how preaching might help us, help us to do that. Um, God has put me these days in this United Nations community in L.A. County. We've been praying about how we can bring his all of thems into our all of thems, <laughs> and it is not easy. But I have found that the only way to set the stage for our churches to break out of comfort zones and actually go out and engage in relationships as Jesus did and call them into the family is for us to hear what Jesus did. And, and to say, we're going to follow you, Jesus, and not, and not, and not the traditions or not the way the, of the world. So we have established three phrases. Our time will go faster than I want it to. Three phrases that guide us. Enter in, call to, and walk with. Enter in. You've got to enter in across those divisions to meaningful, respect-filled relationships because followers of Jesus believe that every human being is made in the image of God. And every human being is one for whom the blood of Jesus is sufficient to bring them into the family of God. Can I have a witness? Do you agree with that? Therefore, a distinguishing mark of the church where Jesus is Lord is that all human beings are invited to come to Jesus and also come in to the all of them. 
then we come to a place where we have to call people to, and I'll do this tomorrow, to the Lordship of Jesus. And finally, we as a community have to walk with people. Um, now, in this chapel message, I'm only going to speak about the first of those. Um, entering in to respect-filled relationships. And I'm going to take us to this text that Tori read for us. For many, a very... Uh, interesting, difficult text, we meet a woman who would have been devalued and marginalized by almost everybody in Jesus' own society. The politicians and the religious leaders would have said, Jesus, you should have nothing to do with this woman. But Jesus turned his whole society's ways upside down, as he always did. And in doing so, he shows us how we as his followers should meet and deal with people. So let me give you the setting in Mark. Those of you who were not here yesterday, this is in this section of Mark where Jesus is demonstrating what chapter Mark uh, 1 verse 1 is saying, that he is indeed the Messiah and the Son of God. And he has been doing incredible miracles to show this. He speaks and winds and waves are calmed. He casts out demons. He forgives sins. He even raises the dead to life. But if you look at the first part of Mark chapter 7, the only thing that the religious leaders even notice is that he and his disciples aren't washing their hands enough. Reminds me of some of our churches, don't you think? You get these big things God is doing, we get these, into these little legalistic things. It seems to me that the religious leaders really thought that what was mattering to God was staying away from being defiled by touching diseased things, demonized things dead things, and damaged people, like this Gentile. With that context in mind, you just get this, so the, the, the controversy is already there. They're, they're upset with him for what he's doing. What does he do in verse 24, if you have your Bible, but goes right into Gentile territory, and he meets a rather bold woman there. So when, when you look at this, you need to know that a first century reader from Jesus' own culture would have found everything he did being wrong. So I've just put it up here for you. What was wrong? It was the wrong place for Jesus to be. Jesus left that place, which was the place where all of you know, his, his Jewish people were, and went to the vicinity of Tyre, and he entered into a house. Um, remember again that the religious leaders, many of them, insisted that God isn't pleased with his, with his children when they spend time with unclean people, it will defile them. So you, then you've got to ask, why does Jesus intentionally head direct into Gentile territory? So I have a map. I, I just want to, see, I don't know if you can see it here. There it is. You can, you can see that. Kind of lets you see where he heads in the next chapter. He, he heads at least... 120 miles into almost exclusively Gentile territory. Into Tyre, into Sidon, into Decapolis. You estimate when you try to figure doing this that it, it took him at least 90 days to make this, I mean, to take this trip. I'm, and in that you just see how much time Jesus in his short ministry spent among the Gentiles. Now this stop in Tyre was the most shocking part of it because the people of Tyre had become the arch enemies of the Jews. The, the Tyrites had been their main enemies in their most recent wars, so much so that the first century historian named Josephus said that the people of Tyre were notoriously Israel's bitterest enemies. And you gotta know this too, They're, in their religion, it was thoroughgoingly pagan. Now, bottom line, the religious leaders of Jesus' day taught that one thing 
that the Messiah was going to do, they thought, was going to be to expel and subdue the Tyrites, not go into their homes, not enter into a relationship with them. But that's exactly what Jesus does in verse 24. And I'll tell you, I'm convinced that that's what we have to do if we're going to be what God says we have to be, namely his witnesses in the kind of world that we are in. We have to intentionally go into where the brokenness is in our world and enter into relationship with people. Okay, what else was wrong? Second, it was the wrong kind of person for Jesus to be speaking to. Because in case we might begin to think, yes, he went into Tyre, but he didn't come into contact with any of these unclean Gentiles there in Tyre, we find that Mark gives us some detail in his short gospel about one of the people who came to him. Look at verses 25 and 26. A woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. And then, then Mark just rubs it in. The woman was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia. So that woman was everything that these teachers of the law earlier in Mark 7 said that Jesus should avoid like a plague. Like what? One, she was a woman. And I'm sorry, women. For many of the Jewish rabbis, they, they said that women were not worthy of their time. Two, she was a Gentile woman. Three, she was a Gentile Tyrite woman. Four, she was a Gentile Tyrite woman from a demonized home. Her daughter had a demon in every conceivable way. This woman was the kind of person that good religious people, for us churchgoers, should have nothing to do with, should avoid. But Jesus did not avoid her. Nor should we. Three. It was the wrong kind of response for Jesus to be making in verse 27. You've got to imagine being a part of these things. Other Jewish rabbis would have almost certainly have lashed out at her, at least some of them. Walking into the home, falling down at their feet, almost certainly they would have said something like this, you dog you, get out of this house now. What on earth or in heaven would ever make you think that a person like me would have anything to do with a person like you? But then Jesus wasn't like other religious leaders. And I think this woman probably knew it. Did you know a lot of people from Tyre would show up at Capernaum where Jesus spent most of his life just to see the miracles he would do and hear his teaching? I'm sure that this woman knew that Jesus did many things that other religious leaders didn't do. Like going into a tax collector's home and inviting one of them to be in his innermost circle. Like picking up grain on a Sabbath and like talking to this demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5, and like letting a woman who had this inner uterine hemorrhage touch him, and then he blesses her. With that in mind, you've got to look at Jesus' response to her in verse 27. He engages in a conversation, in dialoguing with her. As he often did, he used this really short parable. Here's what he says. As she says, I, I, I want you to bless me by casting out the demon. He said, first... Let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Will you leave that up there for a while? <clears throat> Does that bother any of you? <clears throat> that bother any of you? All right, you've got to talk with your New Testament professors about that thing, but with a little bit of time I have, I'm going to walk you through that short parable. 
Here's how I read it. The word Jesus used for children was technon. It's the word for biological children, like the Jewish people would have been. When the woman comes back and says children, that comes to the children, the word she uses is paideon, which is the word for the whole household, which would have included even family pets, that word. Really amazing, this thing. Uh, then, Jesus speaks of the bread coming first to the technon. Are you with me here? To the biological children of the household. The Jewish people were the technon of God. And according to the scriptures, and Paul underscores this in the book of Romans, when Messiah would come, he would first bring God's kingdom blessing to the children of Israel. And then the Abrahamic blessing, it would spill forth and over into blessing others who would come into the household of God. Starting to see this? Then, in the parable, when Jesus uses the word for dog, he doesn't use the word that other rabbis used when they called Gentiles dogs. That, that word was kion. It's a word for the scavengers, dogs that would run in packs. He used this soft word, canarion, which is the word for um, the household pet that belonged to the paideon. No, no, I, see, I get all excited about this. You don't seem nearly as excited as I am. <clears throat> But Jesus was the kind, his response was not the kind of response anyone would have expected. I read it this way. Don't you know that the bread of God's kingdom must first go to the biological family, those people who have suffered so much, uh, the people of Israel, where we still have anti-Semitism. Surely it's not right for me to bring the blessing to you already to those who are in the larger household before it comes to the family. I'll get a drink here. My, my whole point is that he softened everything. He enters into dialogue. Now, now here's one of the points I want you to get. Up until this point, no person in all of Israel had understood a single parable that Jesus had told. So here Jesus tells this parable to this Gentile woman, Tyrite, who has a, a demonized daughter, surely this woman won't get the parable. Right? Four, the wrong kind of person gets the blessing of the kingdom. I'm almost sure this woman knew that Jesus had cast out demons in his ministry. She certainly knew that he was an unusual kind of rabbi. Um, still, she took a big risk when she broke into that home and fell down at his feet um, and blurts out, Lord, set my daughter free from this evil spirit. When I read this, I feel as a parent how desperate this mom was. Most would have expected this rabbi to throw her out. Instead, she hears him using these words like first, household language about children and pets. So in verse 28, I just read it. I think she just goes for it. She, she says, Jesus, there are always crumbs in the bread that fall from the table. When the pets eat the crumbs that fall from the table, they surely aren't stealing the bread from the children, are they? You've got to see this. Um, since Mark 6, Jesus had been using the illustration of bread to speak of the blessing God is ready to give to people when they follow him. 
And this Gentile, this, this Gentile Tyrite woman living in a demonized home, she gets it. She said, even the crumbs of the blessing you have come to bring, that will be enough for us. That's all I ask you for. And Jesus says, such an answer. In fact, if you read the Matthew account of it, he said, woman, you have great faith. And then he says, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Do you see it? I mean, by entering into a respect-filled relationship with this Syrophoenician woman, Jesus expanded the ministry of the Messiah beyond what anybody expected except God himself. Uh, he expanded to reach out across the geographical barriers, across ethnicity, across gender, even across religious heritage in a way that would have been scandalous to the uh, respectable religious leaders in his society. He entered into a relationship with one broken by sin and from him and from God. Nobody else had ever done this. And you see it in the course of that entering in Beautiful things happen. Liberation, salvation came into this home in ways that never could have happened had Jesus stayed distant from all of the problems in the world and just taken the cues of his society. He entered into her life and miracles happened. And they still do. I just tell you, they still do. It's clear to me that if Jesus hadn't entered in across the walls of division, there'd been no hope for this woman and her daughter. And brothers and sisters, as I look around the chapel today, there wouldn't have been hope for many of us either. Because we're not in the technon. We had to have some of that blessing spill out, the crumbs spill out to us Paideon here. Very few of us are of Jewish heritage. And I, I don't know if you, do you agree with me when I say Jesus shows us the way. We are called to bring the blessing and the witness of Jesus into the brokenness of people in the world where God puts us. Oh, I've got to tell you, how did I get to a point of begin having this be so deep in my heart? So I've got to tell you a couple of personal stories. Um, I grew up in Beckley, West Virginia. When I was 13, we moved to Bluefield, West Virginia. It was a beautiful town. It was an all-American city in Life magazine. And yet it was a racially divided a town. Um, we had once had a uh, public swimming pool after the Jim Crow laws were done away with. Uh, they had to open it up to everybody, and so the city officials decided to cement it over rather than to, to let people of color swim in that thing. Um, we, were, we lived in two racially different places. The whites lived here, the blacks lived there because it was mostly a black, black and white division. I, of course, lived in the all-white part of the neighborhood. <laughs> and I'd never had a relationship of any kind with a person of color. So when we moved there to that town, I lived in the white part of town, and I loved to go to our beautiful downtown area. But when I went, I always went with my big brother, who was a weightlifter and a truck driver and a football player. And so I felt pretty safe. One Saturday, he wasn't there, and I wanted to go downtown, so I went for myself, so I went down Union Street where I lived. I turned right on Bland Road. I walked up through, and I had forgotten, oh, no, I've got to go through this more um, color-filled part of our neighborhood. And I walked, and I remember never having even talked with a person of color. I, I was terrorized. I was afraid of them. And so every, every twig that broke, I was, you know, afraid. 
I remember coming around the corner and everything that I had feared was there. Three African-American men were standing there. They looked at me and I think they must have seen the terror in my face. As pale as I am, I was really pale. <laughs> and one of those men said to me, young fella, I have some advice for you. I think you should sit down with us right now and have a nice, cool bottle of pop. And you're going to find out, I think, that we're just folks. So I did, and I did. I found out. They entered into the relationship with me. I found not only folks, I found brothers in Christ. I developed relationships that affected my whole way of seeing the world, the seed of wanting to be in a Christ-centered community that actually is going to look like our father's family is going to look when every tribe and language and nation will be around the throne worshiping, not in division, but in unity. That began to be planted in my heart. And I, I moved from there to Chicago to go to Moody Bible Institute, right down in the city. On one of the first uh, weeks that we were there, we had one, like last night, Brian, we had a worship and prayer chapel and the head of uh, community Christian work came up and said, we have had a new opportunity come up to be able to go teach children down in Cabrini Green. Now, I came from a little town in Bluefield, West Virginia. Do you know Cabrini Green? I have pictures here that you could see. Um, they're, the, they're the housing projects. It was the most difficult of the housing projects in Chicago, right down in the Gold Coast. And so naively, I said, I'd like to do it. So I started going down, teaching children right in the housing projects. And I'll tell you, I don't think I did anything very well. I don't think I did anything very well. I, but, but the moms loved their children. And the brothers and sisters who were trapped in gangs and drugs didn't want their little brothers and sisters to get trapped in those gangs and drugs either. And even though I don't know if I helped anyone at all, I had more hugs there than I've ever had in my whole life. I met moms who loved their kids and felt like the only hope for them was to find Jesus and to know his liberating power and to live in the freedom and the new life that he alone can give. My call to you today is to enter in across those divides, see that every human being is made in the image of God. Don't do that because it's politically correct, but because it's biblically correct. <laughs> Do it because all people are people made in God's image. All people are those for whom the blood of Christ is sufficient. All people can be in God's, all of them. If Jesus, if Jesus is willing to cross those divides, I, I think we can go under his call and in the power of his Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you, uh, in our church, our time is gone, but I'll, I'll just tell you, it is this principle of needing to enter in that is guiding us to try to figure out how are we going to bring the gospel into the difficult issues of this divided world. In the LGBT community, how are, God has raised us up for this. I know we can complain about the difficulties of our society, but we've got to accept this as our great privilege. He has raised us up to be his people, glorifying his name and bringing the gospel to this world. If we stay distant from people, any people for whom Jesus died, we will not see the miracles happen that Jesus saw when he entered in 
and brought the liberating power that he alone could bring. My brothers and sisters, I call you to a life of, of entering in. I mean, sometimes it's a small thing. It's, you see a broken home, and you see that the husband and wife can't even talk to one another. You've got to go enter in and just help them to hear one another. Uh, youth pastors, you might have to enter into a situation where the parents and children just never can even talk to one another. And you might have to sit there for a long time and not even know what to do except to have the Spirit of God guide you and say, I'm not going to leave until we're able all to talk to one another. But mostly, I want us to open up our eyes to the people in our community that, that feel like we're just legalistic, we have all the final answers, and just write them off as not being worthy of anything and saying, no, when you come to Jesus, you find that he loves to show mercy to me. So that as Paul said, I'm the worst of all sinners. If, if, if he is willing to bring me into one of his all of them, all of them's, there's hope for anybody. Do you believe that? You and I are recipients of the mercy of God who go out into the world and tell people wherever you are, there is mercy available. And not just that we do ministry to them across the divides of socioeconomics and education. It is that we go and tell about Jesus and invite them to come into the family, into, into our family. All right. Oh, I've got to tell this one. One part, we do this so many ways. One of the ways that I'm seeing this happening is through one of our ministries that we helped start and one of our ministry partners. It's called the Walter Hoving Home. Um, the Christian leaders who are there go out into the streets of, of Pasadena and even into LA, down into Skid Row, find women who are trapped by trafficking, by uh, meth, drug addiction, and invite them to come and find a home, a, a new way of life. And I'm just telling you, we're seeing miracles there. Jesus is taught there, the Bible is studied there, love is experienced there. People find Jesus there. Liberation is being experienced there. It would never happen if we did not enter in. I'll stop there. I'll come back tomorrow. But I'll ask this. What is going to shape the way that you and I engage in relationships in this world? Will it be CNN or Fox? I, I want us to be shaped by the life of Jesus. Listen to the way Paul puts it, whose life was being shaped by Jesus. Because he will say that there is no one out there in the world who has to remain a slave to addiction or a slave to fear of any kind. That all, when they meet Jesus, can be a child of God and a brother or sister in our family. So I'll leave you with these words. 2 Corinthians 5, one of my favorite texts in the entire Bible. Paul said, now that I know that Jesus had to die for me, that's humbling, and see that he died for all. From now on, I can see no one from a human point of view. But once I looked at Jesus that way, I, I can do so no longer. Now, we know that if anyone is in Christ.
That person is a new creation. And it's all from God, not from us, who has reconciled us to himself and then has given to us the ministry and the message of reconciliation. A message that says that the all of thems who are in Jesus' all of thems can be in the all of thems of our church so that together we can declare the glory of God. May we do it well. Amen. Amen.